Well, on this Lord's Day before Good Friday, we'd like to pay attention to the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and specifically to the fourth word, which has to do with the prophet Elijah. And so we're interested in our readings this morning, first from Malachi 4, and then from Matthew 17. We're interested especially in what he writes about Elijah. Malachi 4, verses 1 to 6. Hear the word of God. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of Moses, my servant, when I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Then we turn to Matthew chapter 17, the transfiguration. Where we'll read the first 13 verses. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transformed before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they have lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them 
of John the Baptist. And then we turn to Matthew 27, verses 46 and 47 and 49. Hear the word of God. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, this man is calling Elijah. Let's read also verse 48. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it's a wonderful thing that when it comes to the suffering that our Lord Jesus endures on the cross, all the gospel writers tell us not only about that actual event, but also about the various reactions of those around the Lord Jesus. And those reactions, to be sure, are very mixed. There are the women who mourn and wail on account of the Lord Jesus. There are the chief priests, the teachers, and the elders who rejoice and who mock at him, even challenging him to come down. And then there are the criminals on his right and on his left who deride him. There are words that are hurled at him, and every once in a while he counters it all by adding one of his magnificently deep responses, the seven last words on the cross. How amazing that is that despite his pain and his suffering, he's able to open his mouth and to come up with wonderful, deep scriptural responses, one after the other, even in the hour of his death. But among all those various reactions that are hurled at him, there's probably not one that's stranger than the one we have before us this morning. At about the ninth hour, what today we would call three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And in response to that, some, picking up on his words there, maybe because of Jesus' dialect, maybe because it doesn't speak so clearly anymore, said, he's calling Elijah. And others said, wait, let's see if Elijah will come. It's a word I think the church has not really thought too much about. Not considered important. Seldom preached on. Just some incidental remark. Eli sounds like Elijah. That's it. But you've you got to realize the Bible is always a Jewish book. It's an ancient book, but it's a Jewish book. And you've got to read the Gospels with Jewish eyes and with a Jewish mind. I don't have a Jewish mind. But nevertheless, there are Jews who can help us with this. Because when we know something of the background here, then we know there is actually very much that's at stake. The comment is lost, no doubt, on most modern readers. 
But to Matthew and his audience, Jewish audience, this is significant stuff. We get an indication of that, for instance, in the fact the way Matthew words it, these were not just the comments of one or two people. Notice what verse 47 says, when some of those standing there heard this, they said, this is quite a few people who are saying this. And verse 49, the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him. Many seem to have heard the cry, and when one man goes forth with a sponge, there are a great many who respond and say, wait, let us see if Elijah will come. What's that all about, we wonder? Well, God's word comes to you under this theme. With the fourth word, the Lord Jesus calls out, not to Elijah, but to God. We'll see what they thought he was praying for and what he actually was praying for. Brothers and sisters, why is it that the words Eli, Eli made them think that Elijah was coming? Is this really nothing more than a matter of words that sound similar? Is that all there is to it? I wonder if Matthew would have spent that much time on it, if that was the point. What you have to know is what the Jews believed about Elijah. Elijah, you have to realize, is probably the greatest eschatological figure of the end. If Moses is the person who reminds us of, who reminded every Jew of the law and of the Old Testament scriptures, often when they said Moses, they meant the whole law and the prophets because the prophets were only uh, uh, writing uh, footnotes to, to the law. Well, if, Mo, if that's the significance of Moses, Elijah is the one who is synonymous with the end. With the end of history, the end of time, the end of redemptive history for Jews and for Christians, for the people of God. In the Mishnah and the Talmuds, we still have those books today, they're, they're almost second in rank to scripture for the Jewish people. Uh, they have a recurring phrase that speaks about the end in those books. And there's quite some chapters in those books. And that phrase is the phrase, until Elijah comes. Don't do this, they say, until Elijah comes. This will not happen until Elijah comes. Elijah is spoken of as, as, as the one who is the forerunner of the Messiah. Because when Elijah will come, then right after him, the Christ, the Messiah, will come. But sometimes he's the forerunner, other times he's simply the one who brings in the end, and usually these two are converged together. All kinds of roles are ascribed to Elijah. Sometimes he's seen by the Jews as the one who, because he never died himself, could be sent on errands to help prophets and others in trouble. More often, Elijah is seen as the one who is involved in judgment at the end. Other times, he's seen as the one who brings about the resurrection of the dead. And all these themes, he has to do with the end. In any case, the appearance of Elijah means great things will happen in Israel. Doesn't Malachi 4 also reflect that? The end will come. Judgment, final restoration. But before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes... Malachi says, the prophet Elijah must come. 
And did you notice some of that in Matthew 17? When the Lord Jesus speaks about the resurrection, then the disciples, what do they say to him? They say, why then do the teachers of the law say, Elijah must come first? And then the Lord himself says, to be sure, Elijah comes and he will restore all things. And it's not as if this is all theoretical stuff for the Jews. No, regularly in Judaism, there were these reminders of the expectation of Elijah. The Jews did some very practical things regularly to remind them and make it possible for Elijah to come back. On Passover night, for example, as they celebrated Passover together as a family, they would always leave the door open. Why would they leave the door open? So that if Elijah comes, he can get in. Now, the Passover table, they would always put one extra special cup of wine. Why? Because if Elijah comes, he must drink some wine as well. Regularly, they were reminded it was real for them. Elijah would come back, and that would be one of the greatest days for all of Israel. In those ways, the Jewish people would express their longing that next year they would celebrate the Passover in the finally redeemed kingdom of God. So what were the bystanders saying when they thought Jesus on the cross was calling for Elijah? They were imagining, it seems, that Jesus, too, was in the same state of longing and expectation that all Judaism was in for Elijah to come back and for better days to come for Israel. The Jews living under the Roman oppression were were longing for God to act to deliver them. And in that week, which was the week of Passover, this hope would have explicitly included the coming of Elijah. They probably had, were going home that night to keep the Passover themselves, to pour the cup of wine for Elijah, to leave the door open for him. How natural then that they should see in Jesus the intensification and climax of their own anguish as he, in agony on the cross, cried out for Elijah to come and rescue him. For God to step in and end the suffering and the trouble of his people. And think about it too. Who was it this Elijah they were longing for? Was he not the man of fire? That's why you have all this eschatological prophecy. He was the man of fire. Associated with the end. Doesn't the Old Testament describe him as the man of fire? What is it that happens to, not just once, but twice to Ahaziah's troops when they come fetch Elijah? They were consumed by the fire that fell from heaven at the command of Elijah. And in that great contest on Mount Carmel between Yahweh, Israel's God, and, and Baal, the Canaanite fertility God, Elijah was the one who first had the water poured on the altar, made everything sopping wet, and then prayed for fire to come and 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 burn up the sacrifice with the cry, whoever does this will be God. And the fire of God fell and burned up the sacrifice, licked up the water that was in the trench. And the watchword Elijah gave to the people was the God who answers by fire, let him be God. 
It was the man of fire who was wanted, someone who would purify and purge Israel, but more especially would call upon down the divine fire upon the enemies of God's people. And he it was who went up to heaven with horses and a chariot of fire. And it's against that background that you have to read actually so much of the Gospels. The, some, the, the, the disciples sometimes seem to have hoped that Jesus would be Elijah. After all, didn't John the Baptist also say that, that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire? Didn't that remind them of this man of fire? At one point, when the Samaritans don't accept the Lord Jesus, what do John, James and John, those sons of thunder, ask for? They ask for a repeat of 2 Kings 1. A repeat of what happened to Ahaziah's troops. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? So there you see, the disciples had this thought, this hope, that maybe he was Elijah, this man of fire, this forerunner of the Messiah, who would usher in the end. It was only by a slow process that they began to realize that Jesus was more than a prophet. He was actually the Messiah himself, that he was the king. And so in Matthew 17, when they, he, Jesus, it becomes evident to the disciples that hey, this is the Messiah they're dealing with in this transfiguration, they say, well, what about Elijah then? Their question seems to be, if this event of the transfiguration, this voice from heaven means that you are the Messiah, Jesus, then shouldn't Elijah come and stay and do his stuff, as the law said? On the Mount of Transfiguration, they heard about a suffering Messiah. But they knew the scriptures and they said, shouldn't Elijah come first? And Jesus says, Elijah has come. He was John the baptizer. He was Elijah. And they did everything that they wanted to him. Gee, John was Elijah. He was the forerunner. And they are left to draw the conclusion, to meditate on it, to even to see the events of Good Friday, the events of the suffering in the light of the fact that Elijah has already come. The end is coming. That is the message of so much of the Gospels. The Jewish expectation as expressed in the open door of Passover and the extra cup of wine was true. Elijah must come and then comes the end. The message of the Gospels so somewhat cryptically is Elijah has come. But the people didn't understand that. And so when he hangs upon the cross, they think he's calling for Elijah the misunderstanding is not just a misunderstanding of language. It's a misunderstanding of the whole meaning of Jesus' life and his death. The Lord Jesus is miles ahead of them. Elijah has come and gone. You did to him things even worse than they did to the first Elijah. O people of God, Herod killed him. His head on a platter, the forerunner, has been killed. And now it is the Messiah's turn. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples. Maybe it was the cup meant for Elijah that was passed around to all the disciples, if it was passed around. 
This cup, said Jesus, is the new covenant in my blood. It means Elijah's work is done. We come now to a new age, the age of the new covenant, the age of the forgiveness of sins. And that night, yes, the door of that Passover room was opened, but not to let Elijah in, but to let Judas out. Elijah's life was spared in two ways. A whirlwind takes him away. There's fire, there are chariots of fire, and there are horses of fire. But the life of the final Elijah is not spared. The life, even the blood of the Messiah must be shed. Nothing less than this is required. For sin, the sins of the people, your sin, my sin. Yes, the end. For the odd thing is, in this way, the eschatological expectation of the Jews regarding Elijah is fulfilled in he who was more than Elijah, in the very one they're busy crucifying. They're supposed to see that and know that. He goes through the hellish forsakenness there so that the people of God might be drawn near to God so that we might never more be forsaken. He goes through it all so that one day we too may be drawn into the presence of the triune God forever. He who is more than Elijah must come again, and then the end will be there. The end that is but a beginning to life eternal in a world restored, with a people restored, all through the blood, sweat, and tears of the cross. Meditate on all of that as you prepare your heart to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Who knows whether the real end will come today, tomorrow, this year, this week. Precisely the fulfillment of these things means every generation after this must live in the expectation that the one who came once will come a second time and will bring his purposes, God's purposes, to completion. There was something wonderful about leaving that door open, placing that cup of wine there. I've sometimes wondered whether we should reenact and that procedure in our Lord's Supper practices. But we probably don't need to. But in our minds, we should live like that and we should celebrate like that in the expectation that the one whose death we celebrate is the one who is coming again. He's alive and he's ready one day soon and we must be ready. How do we know that? How do we know that he truly is going to usher in the end? We know it, brothers and sisters, when we actually understand properly the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And to understand that death, there's no text more significant than this one. Why was this necessary? Have we forgotten? The wages of sin is death, Paul said. What was the price of Adam and Eve's sin, our sin in the garden? Was it not death? Not just a death penalty whereby one's heart stops pumping and one's breath expires, but the death whereby one is outside the presence of the God who is our life. Death came to Adam and Eve, not just when their earthly life came to an end, 
But real death came in the very hour when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Banishment from the garden was a symbol of their earlier banishment from the presence of God. And so the Son of God, if he's going to undergo the sin of that first son and daughter, if he's going to undo that, and if every child of God since must go not through only for, through physical death, but he must go through the spiritual death. He must go through the spiritual death that was the result of Adam and Eve's sin and the re- result of our sin. He must undergo spiritual death. The wages of sin, sin is death. Eternal death, away from God, away from everyone. The hour of desolation, the words of Psalm 22, that psalm in which David thinks he is forsaken by God, the Son of God knows he is forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's the gospel at its deepest. It reveals better than any passage who Jesus is. Almost every aspect of that sentence, even its punctuation, is worthy of our consideration. Maybe it's best to take it from the end and work to the beginning. It ends not with a word, but it ends with a question mark. How striking. It would have been fitting for him, would it not, to end his life on earth with an explanation, something like, I triumph and God is love, but no, no, as he comes to an end and he's in this agony, it's a question that looms large for him. And it's our kind of question. Isn't this the kind of question that we ask when there's sickness, when there's persecution, when there's war in our world or a country, any of the effects of sin in our lives at all, we ask, where is God? It's our kind of question. This is Jesus. He comes not only giving us the answers, he comes asking our questions. And the question before the question mark, that word, yes, the word is me. Why have you forsaken me? It's as if the Son is asking the Father, Father, have you forgotten who I am? Me, your child, your son. Have you forgotten your own words at my baptism? Those words about your love or your voice on the Mount of Transfiguration? Why have you forsaken me? I have been as faithful to you as I possibly could. You don't abandon the faithful, do you? So why do you abandon me? Forsaken, abandoned. There you have the verb of the sentence, a dreadful verb. So dreadful, many have sought to soften it. Jesus felt as if he had been forsaken, they say. But why should we not accept exactly what it says? Now that we can understand it, just accept it. God forsaken by God. Luther said, how is this possible? I don't know. But here is the deepest significance of death, eternal death, God forsaken by God. This is what brings about the reality of hell. It's the place where God's fellowship is not. God forsakes people utterly. Well, this is Jesus forsaken by God. His lifeline has been cut. He dies before he dies. 
He descends right here into hell. Our confession is true. What is hell but a place where God is no more? Well, see Jesus banished, cast out, in order that we might be let in. In Gethsemane, he struggles and sweats, but he still has the Father. But here, the Father is gone, God is gone, and when God goes, the lights go out, and darkness covers the land, deep, ominous darkness. It's been said before that the closest experience to hell on earth is to be abandoned by someone you thought loved you. I thought you never had, I, I, I hope you never had that happen to you. To be abandoned by someone you thought loved you. Well, Jesus thought in his hour of agony, the Father loved him, that it would not come to this. And the word before this word is the word you. Why have you forsaken me? How striking. Other gospel writers may have it differently, but notice that you, as you read Matthew's account of what happens, and I, I believe that if you want to read the gospels properly, you need to read a gospel at a time. Just read the story as each gospel writer reads it without bringing in all kinds of stuff that other gospel writers want to talk about. But notice when Matthew tells the story, none of Jesus' 12 disciples are mentioned, even though John mentions in his gospel that they were there. For Matthew, they're gone. Even Mary, his mother, is, is not mentioned in verses 55 to 56. Matthew doesn't seem interested in giving us an exact list of who was there and who was not, but he does want to point out that God was not there at that particular moment. That's what matters to Matthew. Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? The word you seems to say, I can understand, Father, that my family isn't here. They're human and they're confused. I can understand why my disciples aren't here. They're puzzled and they're frightened and oh, so human. But you, oh God, Father, I had expected you to stay to help me through this. There's deep disappointment here. Deep discouragement. And then the word before that is the word why. Why, they say, is the most difficult of all questions. What questions, when questions, where questions. You can find their answers in the Encyclopedia, in the libraries, the laboratories. You can find their answers on Google. It's amazing what you can find on Google. But try putting a why question on Google. The why questions that you and I are struggling with in our lives. Why does the war in Ukraine happen? Well, you might get some answers from Google to that one. But the deepest questions in our lives, the deepest conversations in our lives are always the ones we're asking why questions. And our Lord is like us. He asks it. It's a real question. 
Let's beware of coming up with easy answers, like Job's friends, for instance. Oh, you suffer so much because you sin so much. It doesn't work here on the cross. Let's be careful about offering our simple because. The cross is often seen as the Christian answer to the problem of evil and of pain and of suffering, and that it is. But it isn't an easy answer. For even there, the question looms, why? He asks our kind of questions. My God, my God. That's how it begins. How wondrous the very God whose presence Jesus doesn't feel, he addresses. The God whom he does not experience, he invokes when he cries out in those first words, my God, my God. These are not words we would expect the Savior to pronounce, are they? Well, here you see it. Right here, of all places, Jesus teaches us exactly what faith is. It is believing God even when you think he's not there. It is holding on to him just when you think he has let you go. As Calvin once apparently put it, why does Jesus say twice, my God, because in his most desolate of all hours, this is what he was doing, taking hold of God with both hands of his heart. And that's how he was victorious. And that's how we need to be victorious. Take hold of God with both hands of our human hearts and cling to him, knowing that he will answer our prayers and lead us to a better day. That's why we have a great hope, brothers and sisters. And we can leave the door open for Jesus to come back. And we can look forward to sitting at table with him because he paid in that way the wages of sin. They're taken care of. One of the most precious lines in our Lord's Supper form that you'll read again next week is a line where it talks about Jesus was forsaken by God that we might nevermore be forsaken by him. No matter what you're going through, no matter what your, the pain is, even our brothers and sisters, somehow, our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, even there they need to know, it doesn't mean they're forsaken by God. All the forsakenness was heaped upon the back of our Lord Jesus Christ. He went through hell so that we might be spared but this is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. De-fellowship by the Father for ours, that we might know a fellowship with him forever. When the crowds could not hear, and the cry from the cross was the voice of desolation, of God-forsakenness wrung from the very soul of the one who was being wounded for their transgressions, not his own, bruised for their iniquities, not his own. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. They and we with them were lost sheep without a shepherd, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In that hour... Jesus experienced the darkness and the horror from which he, even he, shrunk in Gethsemane.
from which not only Satan, not only Judas, not only Peter, but also his own natural inclinations, all this love of his own people had done their best to turn him aside. In identifying with the sin of the world, he became cut off from the presence of God. At the very moment when he was most fully embodying the love of God, he found himself separated from the love of God, the love which he had known since childhood and even into eternity. This then was the end of the road which he had begun to tread in his baptism by John, the Elijah who had indeed come, identifying with sinners so that sinners could be saved. The road ended not in the bitterness of failure, nor just in the physical torment of a cruel and gruesome death, but it ended in addressing the very heart of our most desperate need, our separation from God. Elijah has come. They did to him as they wanted. The Messiah has come. They did to him as they wanted as well. The result, the end is near. He's coming in the clouds soon. Every curse was his so that every blessing might be ours. Let us pray. Father in heaven, almighty, glorious God, we thank and praise your holy name for your word which speaks to us so wonderfully about the suffering and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. The more we pour over the pages of scripture, the more we are led to love you and to praise you and to give you glory. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you endured all of this. Not just pain, not just suffering, but you endured even hellish agony so that we might nevermore be forsaken with hellish agony. We might nevermore be forsaken by you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that this might be our comfort and our strength whatever we go through. And there are things that we go through that are difficult. There are things that we go through that are not on the pages of the bulletin and not known to others. We pray that we might nevertheless know we have fellowship with you. And in that fellowship, we will triumph. You will triumph as long as we hold on to our fellowship with you. Most gracious God, we pray that your people around the globe may, may know this and may realize this. That even those suffering from war, even those suffering from persecution, even those in the most despicable conditions might nevertheless know the problem of evil, the difficulty of evil in their lives has been and is being solved in the one source of all blessing, the suffering and death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who came to save us from our sins. Hear us in Jesus' name. Amen.